It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. As the seismic decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade continues to send ripples through the country, politically, demonstrations in major cities from both sides of the argument, the potential effects will be decided during the midterm elections and how states will individually handle the ruling. Plus, another landmark decision on prayer in schools handed down. We're still awaiting the release of major decisions on immigration and EPA regulations before the end of the current term. Meantime, on Capitol Hill, the January 6th committee hearings about the Capitol riot on January 6th continued with a blockbuster witness. When hearing Rudy's take on January 6th and then Mark's response, that was the first, that evening was the first moment that I remember feeling scared and nervous for what could happen on January 6th. And I had a deeper concern for what was happening with the planning aspects of it. For more on this, we bring in our panel. NPR national political correspondent, Mara Lyason, Fox News radio political analyst, Josh Kraschauer, and Republican strategist, former campaign manager for Senator Scott Brown, Colin Reed. Josh, let me start with you. This January 6th committee, you know, it was not scheduled. It was uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, who was a top aide to Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, who had access to a lot of people. And those conversations, apparently she's a really good note taker, uh, under oath, testified to some pretty amazing things behind the scenes leading up to January 6th and on that day. Yeah, she is definitely the most compelling witness that we've seen so far, namely because she was she was in the room. She was feet away from the president in the Oval Office, and she was with him uh, in the moments before and during the, the January 6th rally. And boy, did we learn a whole lot about the details of, of what happened during the rally and that the, the president had no qualms with having an armed mob, you know, go forth upon the Capitol. He, he actually didn't want a magnometer test and, and a security check for all the folks who were coming in with weapons um, in, 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 on, that, on that very, very, tra- on that very epic day. And that, you know, that, that, that's a, a powerful piece of evidence that there was, you know, he knew that this wasn't just organic. This was something that he, he wanted to kind of foment um, on, on January 6th. We also learned that there was this epic con- con- confrontation in the, in the presidential car, in the in, in the beast, where uh, he you know grabbed the clavicle of his Secret Service agent um, and demanded that he they go to the Capitol, uh, that he actually go they drive him to the Capitol, and that did not happen. Uh, that, that this was secondhand ev- evidence, something she heard, uh, but but it sounded fairly detailed, fairly compelling, 
and it showed how determined the president was really to just aggravate the situation, aggravate the mob on January, no, on January 6th. 6th. And Mara, and just to circle back to that uh, in the Beast story, uh, she retells it after hearing it in front of uh, Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, and the actual agent. And uh, so that's her, her secondhand knowledge of that. But what, what's compelling perhaps mostly is that she had this direct knowledge of conversations and beforehand where Mark Meadows says we could be in for a very, very bad day on January 6th and that she hears the group's Oath Keepers and Proud Boys mentioned in the days leading up to January 6th in conversations and is there with the president in the backstage on the ellipse when he says, I don't effing care about the magnometers, magnetometers. I, they're not here to hurt me. Let them in. I want to fill the, the area. Right. Not only let them in, no magnetometers, but that she testified that he was told by the Secret Service that there were weapons in the crowd. That, and the committee even played police tapes where they identified certain people with an AR-15 or with a Glock-style pistol. But were those people so, arrested? Do we know? I we mean, don't know that. We don't know that. It was, it, this was extraordinary testimony. And, um, you know, I mean, this sounds kind of cynical. My first thought was this was a good day for Ron DeSantis. I mean, <laughs> but uh, it was from very From a political point of view, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, the president was really angry. She told she had a lot of cinematic detail throwing his lunch against the wall. Um, and then, of course, the scene you just described in The Beast where he first tried to grab the steering wheel and then literally assaulted a Secret Service agent and didn't seem to care about the threats to hang Mike Pence. Uh, certainly didn't seem to care, knew, but didn't seem to care that his uh, supporters in the crowd were armed. Colin, we also always have the caveat about these hearings in particular that they're, you know, all singing from the same sheet of music. It's very choreographed. Um, there is not a minority voice or there is not another questioner that's pushing from another side. There's not a Congressman Jim Jordan that's cross-examining. But in this case, um, just that testimony alone is pretty earth shattering. I think one of the challenges this committee had from the start, Brett, and it's something that they've at least to date managed to avoid is having this become all about partisan politics, or at least give off the present, the, the appearance that it's all about partisan politics. And I think one of the reasons this committee has so far uh, been successful is they've managed to keep their members out of the way, including some very partisan folks like Adam Schiff, uh, who you know is better known for uh, his his uh, his performance during some of the the Russia hearings that that cost him a bit of credibility with with a lot of folks and especially with Republicans and they've just managed to kind of keep let, let the focus be on the witnesses and and their testimony and let it stand and if you're going to call a surprise hearing at the last minute in the middle of summer and the week before the Fourth of July you better have someone who brought the goods and so far at this stage it appears as though she did and you know you've seen this Brett you've seen of the former president and, and get crossways with Kevin McCarthy about uh, not having uh, representatives on the committee. And uh, that's the decision they made. And it's one that they're going to have to have to live with. Uh, but the other part, and to, to, to bounce off of uh, Mars point here, you know, there, there is, I'm beginning to believe a, a sense that the Republican Party has so many opportunities in 2022 and 20, 2024, if they can leave the past in the past, 
and, and, and move on and turn the page. Uh, and the, the, some of this stuff that's happening with this committee uh, might be helping them do that. And I know there was a poll in New Hampshire last week that showed uh, Governor DeSantis tied uh, with former President Trump in that first in the nation primary state. So uh, whether that's a, a byproduct of this committee or time passing or just the absolute disastrous performance of the Biden administration or some combination thereof, we'll find out. Uh, but there, there are opportunities abound for Republicans as long as they can move past and not get stuck in the past. Yeah, and it'll, we'll see the political fallout and and how how it does or does not move the needle. I think just listening to every moment of of today's testimony, it it did seem to be fairly significant in in the storytelling of that day and the days leading up to it from a person who was in the room to your point, Josh. All right, we're going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back after this. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. All right, let's go to the Supreme Court decision and the impact of Roe v. Wade. We're a few days removed from it. We are in June. We've got a long way to go to November. Josh, does this significance wash out as the battle shifts to the states, or does it become as compelling in some of these independent and purple districts? Well, Brett, the challenge for pro-choice abortion rights uh, supporters is to keep the conversation going all the way till November. And especially in a political environment where, as Colin was alluding to, the economy, inflation is just such a dominant issue. People are feeling uh, disillusioned just about the, their, the, the economy and the state of their own personal finances. That, that is going to be more resonant. The key is that for the Democrats and for pro-choice advocates is to make sure this is a relevant and resonant issue across the political landscape. I, you know, I've been paying attention to some of the political ads across the country, and you're seeing the abortion issue, abortion rights, Roe v. Wade, come up in bluer states. You're not seeing it yet come up in purple and, and, and redder states. And I, and I really think that, you know, you're going to see a few governor's races, especially in the Midwest, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, those races where you have Republicans who have taken pretty hardline stances on abortion, the state of play legally in those states could change dramatically depending on who gets elected. That The decision may benefit Democrats in those individual states. I think broadly speaking, it's just hard to put abortion rights at the top of the, the agenda for most voters when we're facing so many other challenges as a country. The other thing, Mara, is that some of these uh, challenges, you know, if if a candidate, a Democratic candidate in one of these races, Senator House, goes down this abortion line, uh, there's not there's not a great uh, questioning about the the Democrats' efforts on Capitol Hill because there is there were no restrictions really on the bill that they moved forward on on abortion and and it's an easy question for a Republican to turn around well do you believe in any restrictions and right. well, once see, you go down that road it gets pretty sticky uh, for some of these Democrats especially in moderate places yeah look this the overarching battle political battle on abortion is who's more extreme the Democrats or the Republicans. If the party that that can be where two thirds of the American people are, which is abortion should be safe, legal and rare. In other words, abortion should be legal, but but with restrictions. And that is Roe. And whatever party can get there is going to succeed. Now, the Democrats, if they were smart, I think they would just codify Roe, just codify Roe. Roe is the middle ground. People are happy with it. Even even pro-life people 
are, are, are comfortable with it and don't want to. I know, but that's not what they did, Mara. With the well, choice to do that, they, they didn't do but that. Going forward, I think that every Democratic candidate is going to have to be answer the question, are you for abortion on demand? In other words, yeah. that is how Republicans are going to try to paint Democrats as extreme on this issue. On the other hand, Democrats are going to say, Mr. Republican candidate, are you for any exceptions? Are you for rape, incest, life of the mother exceptions? Do you believe that abortion should be criminalized? What about IUDs? What about in vitro fertilization? I mean, that this I think is the big battle and whoever is seen as more extreme on this issue is gonna lose. Yeah, and what about the abortion pill and how that works with yes, the FDA? Yes, there are a lot of states. questions now, but I agree with you. Codifying Roe would have been the sensible middle ground. They didn't and, and do you know, that and, and that, yeah. Colin, the other thing is you have some Republican governors from very conservative states like Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas saying that he really wants to relook at uh, exceptions for uh, the threat to the mother, for rape and incest, uh, because some Republicans in some states, knowing that Roe v. Wade was kind of hanging over them, uh, voted for the most aggressive so that that she they could go to the campaign trail and say they're ultimate pro-life. But in reality, they may be able or wanting uh, to have some negotiation like a lot of European nations do with a certain number of weeks or exceptions. And Republican candidates and office holders everywhere are going to have to be very careful and be very nimble on questions that come along to them in that form and, and be able to show a degree of empathy and sympathy and, and understand that, that for the pro-life community, the work is not done. It begins anew now. Uh, and one, one chapter is closed, but there's much more to be done. But, you know, in terms of how the, the electorate perceives this, First of all, the constitutionality of Roe was was not something that was just a Republican versus Democrat thing. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously questioned whether or not it was decided uh, the correctly and, and and suggested she didn't. Uh, Senator Joe Lawrence Biden, tribe, Lawrence Tribe, Lawrence right. Tribe did. Senator Joe Biden in 1973, when he got into the Senate, said Roe went too far. So this was this is not exactly one thing that's 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 limited to one party or another. Certainly, both parties have moved uh, uh, further left and right on it over the years. But the other thing, Brett, is we've known now for six, seven weeks this is going to happen. Uh, it shouldn't have come as a surprise. And I think one thing to watch is how progressives on the Hill uh, react to the, reacts to what the Biden administration is doing in response to it. Uh, already, you've seen some folks grumbling that there's not enough. Uh, it's okay to be angry and, and, and go out there and say you're disappointed, but now what? And it does seem as though they were caught a bit flat-footed. And some of those voices, uh, Elizabeth Warren is out there talking about the, the Supreme Court has lost all legitimacy. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is suggesting we need to impeach the justices. Uh, these loudest and most extreme voices on the left are going to be the ones who are elevated, and they are going to push the direction in a dialogue in, in a degree that I think a lot of folks are uncomfortable with. And folks on the, in the Democratic Party are going to have to answer for them, uh, just as folks in the Republican Party will have to answer for folks uh, on their side. Yeah. Senator Warren has suggested that we should have abortion clinics at national parks on federal land, uh, which was eyebrow raising, I think, in uh, some of the, the comments uh, in the days after the, uh, the ruling. Josh, I guess I'll end with this in that I hear from most you know, moderate Republicans, independents, that they just say after 50 years, why now? And, um, you know, the conservative justices had their legal arguments. Um, I think that there is a sense that uh, Justice Roberts lost um, steering that train inside the court. Yeah, I mean, John Roberts is the ultimate incrementalist. He, he understands politics. And, and 
what may pass muster intellectually, judicially, often isn't the soundest politics. We're throwing it to the states. Uh, they're they're going to have to figure out how they're going to deal with abortion laws in all the various states at a time when our democracy, frankly, is not very healthy, that, that both parties are pulling to the extremes and aren't looking for compromise or looking for sound solutions to complicated issues. So it, it's going to be a, a real mess. I, I think Republicans, as you note, Brett, are going to deal with more challenges, not just in 2022. I think it's actually going to be a bigger issue in 2024 when abortion will, I imagine, be a major issue on the presidential campaign trail. And that is going to be something that Democrats are, are going to run on. Um, yeah. and, and, and they're trying to hope Republicans nominate someone who, who's more to the right, who's maybe le- less willing to compromise on these issues related to, to reproductive rights. Um, yeah. So I think so, it's going to be a bigger national issue in 24. Let me uh, circle back, Mara, to where we began, which was the January 6th committee. There are um, reports that Democrats, uh, the DNC and other groups have spent upwards of 40, 50 million dollars in some of these races around the country to support the MAGA, the Trump uh, candidate in these primaries. Ooh, the January 6th. You wish for it, you just might get it. <laughs> right. W- right. Exactly. But they think it'll be easier to run against them. The, the, the th- yeah. interesting thing about the January 6th committee is that there are. There's a lot of focus on the January 6th committee, a lot of mentions about it in Democrats and and liberal-leaning pundits. Um, But if the January 6th committee is really good at what it does, and today was an example of it with that witness that was really eye-opening and jaw-dropping at some times, the implication is that being good at it will prevent Donald Trump from running or will somehow change the dynamic and he doesn't run for president or can't because of his poll numbers. which is antithetical to the political situation that Democrats potentially would want to run against Donald Trump. That's a really good question. And there has been a lot of progressive pushback saying, look, this committee is all about Liz Cheney's agenda, which is making sure Donald Trump can never run again, because that's her first order of business. She thinks that's the most important thing to preserve democracy in America, whereas they would like the indictment to be much broader of the entire Republican Party. But yes, there's no doubt that there is, uh, it's, it's, it's tough to choose your opponent. And uh, there has been some Democrats who've succeeded at that. Claire McCaskill is one of them, where you get into the other guy's primary and you try to uh, help the most extreme candidate in the hopes that he's the easiest to beat. That's not necessarily true. But um, there are also just, there are a lot of people who just think, look, Donald Trump might be the easiest candidate to beat, but that doesn't mean we want to encourage him or do anything that could help him be the nominee. What he did was so grievously harmful to American democracy that it's important to to you know, lay out those facts against it. But you raise a really interesting question, because what if Democrats help nominate some of these extreme Republicans and they end up winning the general election? Yeah. I mean, listen, we, we watched a campaign where you liked the prisoners who weren't captured and John McCain. Yep, yep. And we had no one Bush, thought he could win. No the Billy one Bush thing on win. the bus and, and, it, and yep. he did win. Yep. Um, this feels different, but we'll see over time if yep. it is different. Panel, thank you so much. Now for a bit of history. June 28th, 1914, a Bosnian Serb nationalist assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand. This would set off a chain of events that led to the eventual outbreak of the First World War by August of that year. Five years to the day, on June 28, 1919, Germany and the Allied powers signed the Treaty of Versailles, officially marking the end of World War I. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. For Mara, Colin, and Josh, I'm Brett Baer. 
We'll see you next time. business moves fast stay on top of it with the fox business rundown every monday and friday listen to the fox business rundown starting may 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts